You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On today's show, we have Jerry Ross, who has achieved successfully in corporate, startup, and nonprofit organizations. He is a lifelong entrepreneur that has been honored as CEO of the Year by Orlando Business Journal and the Economic Development Leader of the Year by i4 Business Magazine for his work at the National Entrepreneur Center. On today's episode, we'll talk about how can a startup ecosystem be built? What are the resources that are available to startups that they might not know about? How does a founder find those first big corporate sponsors? What skills can or can't be taught to founders of a company? This and much more on today's episode. And also, we have a special giveaway. We have a signed autographed copy of Jerry Ross's book that we'll be raffling off to whoever writes a comment for this episode. So make sure to participate and enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Jerry, thank you for taking the time today to be on Silicon Valley. Thanks for having me. This is a great opportunity. Jerry, can you give our listeners a little bit of background on your work experience, your career up to this point? I'm uh, part of a big family, so we all learned how to get out and hustle pretty early. I had the paper route and the lawn mowing business. When I went to college, I was on the radio, had an event business doing dances for the local high school. So I sold that when I graduated from college. And then I went to work for AT&T and Ohio Bell, huge companies which taught me measurement, management, leadership, a lot of the things that I, that I didn't know as an entrepreneur. I went to a mainframe software company and selling about $100 million worth of software over the phone. It was really good stuff. We eventually went public. And it was after that that the entrepreneur itch hit me again. And so I moved to Orlando, Florida with a friend of mine who was starting a business and needed help. It was in 89. And by 1990, we were penniless. And it was awful. I couldn't work any harder. And while we were cash flowing, it, it wasn't working the way we had designed it on paper. I think it's Mike Tyson that says you can have a plan until you get punched in the face. you know. And so that's kind of what happened. But within a year, I was back in my own business, a lighting business, a specialty lighting business that did theme parks and concert tours and film and that kind of thing. So I learned that business and we became very good at it. We had great employees and great clients. So we were growing. We opened in Atlanta, we opened in Charlotte. And then by 98, we were approached by a New York Stock Exchange company to buy us out. That was great for the employees. And for the last 13 years, I've been uh, helping other entrepreneurs here at the National Entrepreneur Center. So why did that company approach you to buy you out? Well, they were manufacturing and using xenon lighting, which is a specialty light that they used in film to project the film onto the screen. And so they, they had about 80% of the film projection market in the world and were great at manufacturing. And so they started consolidating the manufacturing of other xenon products. And so they were buying the patents and growing their production facility. They got to the point where they said, hey, we, we've got a lot of patents and we're producing a lot of product. Now let's go buy a company that knows what to do with it and how to sell it. We've been very successful at marketing to the concert business and also to the military. We ended up selling the gear that lit the shuttle on the launch pad at night. And so if you've ever seen the shuttle lit up at night, I had something to do with that. So they approached us and said, hey, what do you think about coming to work for us? And I said, I can't. I'm busy. I'm running a company. And they said, what if you didn't have a company to run? What if we just bought you out? And then it became a, a matter of negotiation. 
when you negotiate to sell a company, you need to get paid for what you own. That's an asset sale. But you also need to get paid for what you know and for what you've done. Because many times entrepreneurs put off getting paid to build the business. And so they are sacrificing income to build the business. And when they sell the business, that means someone else doesn't have to go through that. And so you should get paid for that. So we negotiated on assets, what we own. We negotiated on what we had done in building that business and that brand. And then uh, we got paid for what we know because we had a book that was our business plan that we would review as a company every year to say what worked and what didn't, how do we improve. That book became the value because it proved it wasn't an accident. It proved that what we were doing was, was a strategy and that we had thought about where we opened and what we did and how to market. So that was one of the most valuable pieces that they bought. And then they have to pay you to come and do it. So I had a contract to, to come and help them transition the company and build it, which I did. And for the last 13 years now, I've, I've been here at the National Entrepreneur Center helping thousands of entrepreneurs live their dream. Can you tell me about that transition from being your own boss, starting this company that just accelerated to now managing the Entrepreneur Center? And tell us a little bit about the Entrepreneur Center in Orlando, Florida. Well, the transition, first of all, is when you sell your baby, <laughs> there was a, a lot of concern about, I've helped build this, uh, I helped vision this, and now I'm selling it to someone else. But by the same token, there was a whole sense of relief to say, you know, I, I, I don't have to worry about some of the things that an owner has to worry about, like making payroll at the end of the week. On one hand, it was, it was tough to give up your baby. And on the other hand, I saw that we were going to be able to grow the company in a way that I've probably would never be able to with the resources I had. Before entrepreneurship was cool, our community said, let's invest in small businesses. Let's help them accelerate and let's keep them here. Because for most folks, the model of economic development is that we recruit businesses from somewhere else and then someone loses. The city they left loses. And, and usually when the tax breaks run out, they look for another one. Our community looked ahead and said, let's grow our own. The idea was let's put all of these support organizations that exist in the community in one location. We'll reduce duplication, we'll leverage the limited amount of dollars that our community has to support business development, and at the same time, we'll make it really efficient for not only the support agencies that live here, but also the, the entrepreneurs that visit. So it's a one-stop location that now has 14 nonprofit organizations here with a single mission, and that's to help our small businesses grow. Can you talk a little bit more about all these advantages of starting up your company in Orlando, Florida, or maybe if there's some disadvantages to it as well? There's both. And I think that's true in every community. One of the advantages is that Orlando is a worldwide brand. And so when people hear Orlando, they know where you are. That's a little harder if you're in a, in a city that people don't recognize. The second advantage is we get 77 million visitors a year. That produces a huge demand for services professional services, as well as just the service industry, the hospitality industry. And so that fuels the engine of growth. The weather. I have not missed shoveling snow once since I moved to Orlando. The weather is great. So those are all advantages. Some of the disadvantages are that we have limited venture capital here because we're a pretty young city. We're not like a Chicago or a New York in that Disney arrived in the early 70s. That brought about the boom in Orlando. Really, we're about 50, 60 years old as a city. And that's sometimes we don't have the, the long-term residents and the long-term success that, that other cities can rely on for funding and, and for giving back. 
angel investment is limited here. And while we're working on that, we don't have the, the decades of family history here to support some of the new ventures through venture capital. It's also overcoming the brand that we are the number one tourist destination in the world. And so when people hear modeling and simulation, they go, really? In Orlando? Or, you know, Sharp Mitt Advanced Manufacturing, you know, <laughs> really? In Orlando? Isn't that where Disney is? And you say, yeah, but all of those theme parks need engineers and they need modeling and simulation to say, how do we build the next Star Wars world? What that's brought here through modeling and simulation is the military. So every branch of the military is here doing modeling and simulation. And then you get into cluster theory to say, if that industry sector locates here, then lots of industry players locate around that. We're seeing that with FinTech. We're seeing that with our medical city, which 10 years ago was a pasture. And today it's got the Veterans Hospital. It's got Nemours Children's Hospital. It's got the UCF Medical School. They're building a teaching hospital. And that was all in an area that was a pasture just east of the airport. And now you can fly into Orlando and be in Medical City without going through a stop sign or a stoplight. Again, that's visionary leadership. And I think that's what has made Orlando the leader in job creation for the last four years in a row in the country. That's not an accident. That's a strategy. You had mentioned that there's a lack of venture capitalist funding, angel investment in that area. So then where are the companies getting funding or have they figured out alternative routes to fund their early stages? Well, entrepreneurs will always find a way, but most of the venture capital funding, and, and it has come here, but usually with that comes the, the pressure to move. If it comes out of Boston or if it comes out of Silicon Valley, I know if I was investing in a company, I'd want to have it close by to keep an eye on it. I think that's been an, an area that we have explored as a region to say, if we're going to have these companies that scale, how do we keep them here? And part of that is giving them the funding to grow. And you had mentioned the kind of cluster effect of all these different organizations coming together, the military. Can you talk a little bit more about the economic through small business and startup development? It's a long process. And I stole this from a gentleman in Austin when I was there to, to see how Austin does what they do. He made a comment about a unity of purpose with a continuity of effort. And he said that led to their success. And so I went up to him right after he spoke and said, I'm taking that. I'm stealing it. And I'll give you credit for it the first hundred times. But for years, I brought that saying back here to say, a unity of purpose means what can we all agree on? And what, what are we all going to get behind? And then we need to do that long enough to be successful, not till it gets hard. When we look at economic development through small business development, it's a long-term approach. It's going to take a continuity of effort. But we agreed as a community that this was important. And Disney invested, and the University of Central Florida invested, and the city, and the county, and the Orlando Magic, and Wells Fargo, and Regions Bank. And so we have all of this local support to say small businesses are important to us. And now, 17 years later, we have the success stories that we didn't have the first five years. You know, we had to be willing to say, we've got to invest this. And that's why we do, we call it Main Street Gardening, that we're planting those seeds of ideas. But you plant a seed and you may work for a while and not see anything. And then it pops up and that's not time to harvest. You have to still take care of it and let it grow strong. And, and then eventually you can harvest. And so we've looked at small business development that way and said, there will be a harvest. And so 17 years later, the world is coming to our, our door to say, how do we do in our country what you're doing in Orlando? And I say, you know, 
we're not that smart. We're just common sense folks saying it makes sense to help our small businesses grow because that makes the economy and the small business. So when these countries are coming to you asking for advice then, what are you telling them? Are you giving them any suggestions? Oh, yeah. Everyone is different. But you know, the basics of small business are the same everywhere in the world. Leadership is leadership and management is management. Accounting better be the same everywhere in the world. And so the basics of running a business are the same. The piece that changes is the cultural piece. And that changes, you know, by city. I mean, even in the US, cities have different cultures. I spoke in Cairo, Egypt, and I was asked, is it okay to pay a bribe? I said, I don't know. It might be okay in your culture. In our culture, we call it a tip. And it comes at the end of the meal, not before. And so those are cultural differences. And so today, the same thing in Istanbul, the same thing in Medellin, all places where people came to hear about capitalism and small business development. And I taught the same things that we teach here. What we don't talk about is the cultural piece because that is going to vary by by various communities. So today, folks from all over the world will sign on and watch what we're doing in our, our training rooms. And then they'll put translators on the other side and we're we're changing the world one business at a time because ownership is how you break the cycle of poverty. And so we don't teach that in many schools. That's fascinating. And when you're working with these companies, I mean, I looked at your website, you've helped companies raise over 220 million so far. These companies that you're working with, how do you know when they're an investable company? What does that take? What does that mean? Well, first of all, we don't make the loans here. You know, those are made by the banks. The SBA guarantees help a lot. When we say we facilitated that, typically what that means is that we've brought a business in that maybe wasn't bankable because banks are not in the risk business. <laughs> they read your business plan from the back to the front. So they start with, how am I going to get paid back? And then they say, okay, I can get paid back. What do they do? And so most of the time, it's helping them get their cash flow statements together, their financial statements together to point out where they're weak. Many times our bank sponsors here, when they meet someone that's bankable, they don't have to say no. They can just say not now and send them to us and we help them get their financials together or, or their business plan. We may help them with their pitch to say, I don't see what you see. I never bought a pet rock and the guy made millions. I would have counseled Google to change their name and it seems to be working for them. And so our coaches can see a company that may see something they don't. What we do is to say, you have to have the basics in place where a bank will, will take that kind of risk on. We do help a lot of businesses get loans, which helps them grow, which is, which is our intent. So then in your situation or your, the economic development area there, it's more working with banks and lenders versus here in Silicon Valley where it's probably more predominant angels and VCs. Correct. And so when we get those businesses who are bankable and growing using a bank, Typically, they'll go through our incubator program, which is connected with the University of Central Florida. That's where we start working on how to pitch for angel investments in stage one and stage two funding. So we're handling the masses mostly here at the Entrepreneur Center. Once we get them solid and growing, that's how we utilize the resources of the second tier of support because they can only handle so many. Part of that screening process is is the business going to be around and are they going to be financially solvent? Because once they get to the venture stage, they're going to have to produce returns. That's interesting because normally here, the venture stage is the first stage. (laughs) I understand that. And so what we try to do is to say, we get them ready for that. But again, 
in Silicon Valley, they're, they're so far ahead with the understanding of a new venture and the understanding of risk. Here, it's a much younger version. Other than banks, what types of resources are there for companies there that they may not know about or companies throughout the world that they may not know about? Especially in the U.S., small businesses need to connect with small business development centers. It's a national program. They're in lots of cities and they're called SBDCs sometimes for small business development centers. They're usually connected with a university. And those are employees of the university or the organization that are trained in their subject matter and can help businesses. And it's free. Go visit them. SCORE is a volunteer organization that is national. So if there's a local SCORE chapter, they need to engage with them. SCORE is volunteers, and they are volunteers with business experience who volunteer to mentor and help small businesses. And it's free. And so that's my favorite word for a small business is free. And so when we can say, come and talk to a coach and it's absolutely free, that opens the door. And then it's up to them. It's not our job to open their mail and read it to them. You know, our job is to deliver the mail. And so if someone wants to engage, we have those services. Then you get to chambers of commerce. We have about five chambers of commerce here, and each of them provide a a larger circle for those businesses. So if they have a product that is specific to the Asian market, they need to join their local chamber of commerce, sometimes for the the region, but also sometimes for, for that niche to say who's in this space and who's playing and who's active, and that enlarges their circle of contact. So those are all areas, I think, in any city that people can engage with that maybe sometimes they get busy and forget about and don't. Internationally, AmCham is a chamber of commerce that's usually in in other countries, and and that's a larger chamber of commerce. Going to, and here in Orlando, we're very fortunate because lots of conventions come here, conventions for industries or segments to say, you know, you need to get down there and meet the people who are players in the industry. And that's been very easy for folks that are here. I speak at conventions. And so it's very nice for me to say, I don't have to charge you for travel. And so uh, that's one of the advantages of being here in Orlando, that lots of conventions come here. And as a result, if you're in, I mean, ITSIC was just here, which lots of people engage in. Plastic show is here. So if someone's in you know, manufacturing of plastics or chemicals, they, they can go to the plastic show, which comes to them. So whatever city you're in, look at what conventions are coming or what leads groups are happening around there. But it takes some work. You've got to engage in and getting engaged. How does one of these companies find their first possible corporate sponsor or first big corporate partnership? <laughs> I, I remember uh, when I was getting started, I was pitching Disney and, and they said, so how many clients do you have? And I said, if you, sir, would be so kind as to sign this agreement, you would have the full attention of my entire team because they would be one of the first major clients. And so the first one is the hardest, but you have to research, you have to do your homework, and you have to earn it. We were never afraid of saying, we're going to make you proud. We're going to make you happy. We're going to give you what we promised. And if we don't, we're going to make it right. We were never afraid of competition. I had competition in every city I ever went in, but we always said, we're going to be the best. And even when we had good shows, we would come back and say, what could we do better? I never got hurt helping other people. And so there were times that that we just helped and said, maybe we're not the the prime contractor on this, but if we can help them do a better show, we're in. We hired the best. We we marketed excellence and so that we didn't have to shop price. But in order to do that, you got to be excellent. I think major 
companies will use a small business. They prove that, that they can perform and that they're not high maintenance. What does the process normally look like for a company reaching out to these corporations from day one to signing a contract? A long time. And also, many times, in getting paid, it takes a long time. When we were negotiating with uh, NASA to light up the shuttle, it was an enormous amount of time to prepare answering the bid, preparing the data and the documentation to prove we could do what we said. And then it was a long time to get a decision. And then it was a long time for implementation. And then it was a long time to get paid. All of those things, you say, is that worth it? Well, when the check came in, it was all worth it. For most businesses, they've got to to make a decision. Do I invest this time and energy and effort? Will there be a return? And sometimes that's the call that you have to make that it could have gone the other way, that we would have said we spent a whole lot of time and effort and didn't get the deal. So I think part of it is finding the right person and talking to the right person. Everyone can sell, but most people who say they can't sell are talking to people who are not qualified and interested. If you're talking to the wrong person, you can do a wonderful presentation and still not get the order. Those big companies, it's it's like dealing with a government. You've got to learn the organization and learn who makes the decisions and then talk to them about what it's going to do for them, not just what I do. You know, to come in and say, I do this and I do this and I do this. Well, they they got a whole bunch of people who are already doing that for them. So if they come in and say, here's what I can do for you, they like to hear that. Even if they're a big company, they always like to hear what you're going to do for them. One of the examples in the software business, we had really good software that made an IBM mainframe run more efficiently. When we would hire people, and when I was hired, I said, I don't know much about mainframe software. And they said, you don't have to know much. We know what our customer's pain is, and we know that our product will solve that pain. And so we called people up and said, you have a storage problem? You have an IBM 3090? They would say, yeah, you have a storage problem. Yeah, I got a product that'll make you a hero. I'm going to send it to you for free. And when you're a hero, you send me a check. Fair enough. It was as simple as that. And we sold $100 million worth of software. When we would send them the software, they would put it in and become a hero. And then you think they would send me a check? They always forgot that part. And then it gave us an opportunity to say, we want to earn your business. We want to have this be a partnership. Because if you make a partnership, you get paid for life. You make a sale, it pays you once. And so it's finding those companies that you say, here's what I can do for you, rather than saying, here's what I do. Jerry, you'd mentioned sales there. Are there skills that entrepreneurs can learn and skills that entrepreneurs can't be taught? Well, I'm always careful about saying that someone can't learn something because I think anyone that has the desire to learn can learn anything. It's a little harder to, to learn grit. It's a little harder to learn passion, vision. I mean, those can be taught. Creativity, you know, some people say I'm not really creative, but there are exercises to learn that. So those are things I think that naturally come to entrepreneurs that they see things that other people don't, and they're passionate enough to say, I'll risk it all. You know, that's not normal. I think some people are born with a higher degree of that. People ask me if entrepreneurs are risky, and I don't think they're necessarily risky people. I think they're, they have a bigger risk box than most people. It's about managing your risk box. You've done all the things to reduce the amount of risk, and it's a good decision and believe that that can pay off. I don't think that's risky. I think that's making a good business decision. The other skills, accounting, yeah, anybody can learn accounting. I even learned it. I, I don't like it so much, but I, I learned how to do that, mostly so I could spot when something's wrong. And then I bring in someone that really knows it to say, how do we fix it? Or why is it wrong? Marketing, I think anyone can learn. 
Those are skills. I think anyone can sell and, and it's just putting them in the right opportunity to be successful. Sometimes we would bring our salespeople in and say, what's the worst challenges you've had or the worst negatives that you've had? So how would we answer that? What's a killer answer that would work for that? What objections do you hear? And we'd say, you know, every industry has about five objections that they hear all the time. Well, it's not going to be a surprise. So think about it, come up with a response that says, I appreciate your input and here's what we think. We would equip our salespeople to be successful rather than just throwing out there to the wolves and saying, have at it. But also, I think it's about finding people who are qualified. And if they're not qualified to to buy, you shouldn't be presenting to them. If they're not interested in buying, that means not now. Everyone's going to buy from me. They just don't know it yet. And so if they say no, that just means not now. And there may be an opportunity in the future. So you always protect those as well. You had mentioned some organizations like SBDC, SCORE. Are there any other suggestions you might have for finding the right mentors or advisors for your company? And how do you know who is the right one, the right mentor or advisor? First of all, another organization I forgot to mention was micro lenders. And every, every region has different micro lenders. Uh, we have Axion here, which is a micro lender, and our Black Business Investment Fund is here. Those are both specific lenders who are set up to help small businesses, and I'm sure that they have nationwide offices. But if not those, there, there are micro lenders typically in every state that will look at a small business. As far as mentors are concerned, I have been blessed with great mentors, people that can tell me the way it is, give me the unvarnished truth. And that doesn't mean I have to do what they say or follow their exact advice, but you need those out, people outside your circle that can look in and say, I think you're doing this wrong, or I think you're missing something over here. I have been blessed from day one with good bosses and some bad ones that taught me a few things. But entrepreneurs are, I've never asked an entrepreneur for help that I didn't get it. And so I think entrepreneurs, I look for entrepreneurs and say, can I take you to coffee? And I don't do lunch and dinner and all that stuff because first of all, it's expensive. But second of all, it takes a lot of time when you're asking someone who's really busy to, to give you that kind of time, I think that's a lot. So I usually say coffee. Let's meet for coffee in the morning or in the evening. And I, I would like to get your input on what I'm doing. And I've never had an entrepreneur say, say no. You know, I mean, they've said, you know, I'm really busy. I can't do it now. But I think the best place to look for entrepreneurs are, are people that have met a payroll. Once you've met a payroll, you become a different person. Meet entrepreneurs or meet mentors, advisors? Mentors and advisors. A lot of entrepreneurs are my mentors, people who've been there and done that. I've had bosses who have been mentors. My board chair has left the board and is retired and is still a mentor. We still meet for coffee. I ask for that input. And then I have lots of younger folks that I love to hang out with. I'm going to be doing that this weekend in New York with a lot of young folks that say, here's what's important to us. And here's, here's how we're starting businesses. And here's how we're doing technology. I think opening yourself up to people who have different ideas and who are outside your circle, you really need to get someone that's going to tell you the truth. And what I found is that entrepreneurs that I say, can I get you know, half an hour of your time? Can we go to coffee? Can you, can you give me some insights? They're usually more than happy to do that because they have a story too. I actually really like that because in my mind, whenever I get asked this question, mentors, advisors, people are always looking for those industry experts, where at the same time, your fellow entrepreneur could probably maybe even be a better mentor than one of these people that maybe have not experienced what you're going through in the last 20 years. Right. And sometimes they have experiences where they say this really worked, or they can say this was awful. 
don't look at that. They've taught me about human resources and managing staff because growing up, I was the staff. And so a lot of times it's, it's like having your own place and then someone, you know, you get a roommate, all of a sudden you're going, you know, you're in my space. It's sometimes you need someone outside your space to come in and invade and, and move things around and, and challenge those things you're doing that might just be doing it because that's all you know. So especially with personnel and management and leadership, those kind of things, I have great mentors there. And then as far as technology, I go to people that are in the technology business and say, what do you think we ought to do? And, and does this make sense to you? What would you do if you were sitting in my chair? That doesn't mean you have to do it. Because as I say, I have a lot of ideas, but they're not all good. Mentors are doing the best they can to help you, but that doesn't mean that everything they're telling you is, is right. So with that, can you tell us some of the success stories or maybe just stories in general from the Entrepreneur Center of companies that you've worked with or have gone through the program? There are a lot of great stories here. We're doing good work. Last year, the organizations here just coached and trained face-to-face over 15,000 business people. We connected with over 200,000 business people out of this center. So there have been lots of businesses through the years. A couple of examples. I walked into our computer lab one day, and this was years ago, and uh, a young lady was emotional. And I said, what's up? And she said her computer had crashed at home. She didn't know who owed her money. She didn't know who had paid. And she didn't know where she was supposed to be that weekend because she had taken reservations. She ran a pedicab company. She said, and ultimately, if I don't have enough marketing dollars, I don't make enough money this month, I can't pay for my cab license. And so I lose my business. We surrounded her with some, some support to, with marketing to say, you know, that's a marketing issue to get some money in the door. But we also helped her look at how that she developed her business and whether that was, and she, she was a warrior. If you remember President Obama's inauguration that snowed, she put her pedicabs in the trailer and went to Washington and drove people in the snow because people were having a hard time in the traffic. She grew her business. At one point, she had 50 independent drivers for her that were doing anywhere between $200, $800 on a weekend. For somebody in their part-time job on the weekend, that's pretty good. She came in my office and said, I've got a problem. And I said, oh, no, you know, small businesses in the first five years have problems. And she said, um, the NBA All-Star Game is happening in Orlando, and they, they booked all of my pedicaps. And then I got a call that the Daytona 500 is happening the same weekend, and they want my pedicab. What do I do? I said, uh, how many new pedicabs do you want? And she grew her business. I think it was Oracle that came to the convention center and said, we want to hire your pedicabs to take people from the front door to the parking lot because it's a huge parking lot. And we want you to wear our shirts and hand out flyers to people that are going to their cars. And she said, great, I'll bring all my pedicabs. And I said, what's the problem? She said, how much do I charge? I've never dealt with a big company before. And I said, how much debt are you in? Because the billboards were already sold. The advertising, it was a huge convention, the uh, electronics convention, home electronics. So it was a huge market for her. I don't think she charged everything. She was in debt, but it gave her an idea of, about thinking big. On the other end of the spectrum, LiDAR, Luminar is a company here that's in the cutting edge of autonomous vehicles and driving. We've had some uh, drone companies that use 3D scanning. First of all, they were driving it through the orange groves to tell you how many oranges were on the tree because there had never been a physical count of oranges in Florida. They started this project and this algorithm of, we can tell you how many oranges are on the tree, but at the same time, they could tell you where the trees were planted and where they had holes in the grove, and then also the caliper of the tree, so they could tell if the trees were growing. They scaled, they got venture capital, and uh, I said, are you 
ready to sell yet? And they said, not yet, because we're still driving it through the, the groves. And, and today, they fly it through on a drone. I uh, said to them, how are you going to make money? Who's going to pay? And they made the most money from the sprayer fertilizer companies because the farmers were saving so much money not spraying fertilizer where there wasn't trees. It became ROI immediately for them. Investors looking at product production. So there was lots of angles to that. And now they're working on, I think, blackberries and blueberries and other agricultural products. Lydia Chickles is, is a tech company that's here. Sherrod Meta. In fact, this is, a, this is the full circle of, of what we envisioned as a community. I was the first person Sherrod met when he came to visit a few years ago. And he said, I've got a t-shirt company and we're doing really well, but I have capacity. I have a facility that has capacity. I thought, okay, t-shirt shop, international drive, tourist. No. I went to visit him and he had a, a 50,000 square foot warehouse that was a production facility. And they were producing t-shirts for Vegas, for every theme park, amazing production. We worked with him on capacity. And uh, he grew from about $4 million to, I think he's doing $22 million today. And last week, he paid for the holiday reception for all of the 14 organizations here to say, I want to give back. When we started this process, it was how, how do we grow our own businesses? And after 17 years, we have a business that we had helped. They have grown to over 100 employees. And now here they are coming back to, to pay for an event here. And so they're giving back. And that was the idea from the beginning is let's build businesses who stay here and give back. Jerry, what type of technology are you really excited about? You just mentioned drones and autonomous cars. Tell me what your, your thoughts are for the coming years. Autonomous vehicles are going to change lots of things. That technology is getting better. Jason Eichenholz is here with Luminar that is using LiDAR to do that. And we have Beep, which is a bus out at uh, Lake Nona that is an auto self-driving bus. We have only the technology here. But we also have the test facilities here that they're, they're able to put those out in the public and say, it's time to test. And so when you're beta testing stuff, that means it's moving forward. Blockchain is, you've got to know about it. It's coming. It's implemented in a lot of places and it's going to change industries. I think that's something that people aren't aware of, of how far along it is. And so we're still far enough away that you can not know about it. But ultimately, <laughs> I, I was speaking up in, in Ohio to a group that was managing risk. We were talking about selling insurance and, and how that process and that delivery channel will change. But also, in uh, how do you manage the risk in a drone that has an accident at 100 feet and lands on my head? We have a hard enough time talking about who's at fault when the accident is in front of us. The self-driving car, how do you ensure if I'm in the back seat and we have an accident? I wasn't driving. I was in the back seat. And so was it the technology? So it's those kinds of subsequent waves I think this technology is going to do. AR and VR is changing the world as well. Medical research, when doctors can stand around a hologram and peel it to look at the in insides, I'd rather have them do that than work on me. To have that ability with virtual reality, some of the, the rides at Disney, I know I couldn't go out and surf the way they did at Disney, but boy, I feel like I have. <laughs> some of those experiences that the technology is getting better are very exciting. And I think, yes, it's going to change a lot of industries in a negative way, but I think it's going to provide huge opportunity for those that say, I'm in and embrace the technologies. And Jerry, before we wrap up, what other information can you give us about small businesses? Well, I think overall, small businesses are taken for granted. 
in the Edward Lowe Foundation has a website called YourEconomy.org, which will break down the number of small businesses in a particular region and also how many jobs they create. So in Florida, the number of businesses headquartered in Florida that have less than 10 employees is 84% of the businesses. They produce about 33% of the jobs in Florida. 14% of the businesses in Florida have 33%, where the 84 was higher. So 98% of the businesses in Florida have less than 100 employees. We hear about the big companies hiring 2,000 people. Well, you also hear about the big companies laying off 2,500. You know, when you look at the big companies, the net jobs are coming from the smaller ones because they're less efficient and they hire people. I think it's important for every city to look at how do we support and build our small business community because that's where the jobs are created. And I think that's what builds the strength of a community. And any last words for entrepreneurs out there? You can do it. It will work. It just takes time. It takes, you got to be all in. And you got to have a good idea. And, it, and it's not bad news to hear that it's, it's not a good idea. That means that, that maybe there's another one along the way. So get help. You're not in this alone. Seek help. If you go to the National Entrepreneur Center website, which is nationalec.org, or you can get us on Twitter at nationalec, we're on Facebook at nationalec, or they can email me at jerry at nationalec.org, and uh, we'll connect them. That's great. And Jerry, I want to thank you once again for taking the time today to be on Silicon Valley. I'd also like to thank Nigel Selena, who made the introduction to Jerry that allowed this conversation to happen today. And also anyone at home, if you enjoyed this conversation and you want to hear more, please subscribe to the podcast so you're always up to date and write us a great review on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening to this on. So once again, Jerry, thank you again for your time today. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only and is licensed by the Investors Podcast Network. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.